When the world's attention shifted to COVID-19, it put some communities at risk, more so than the pandemic itself. And years of effort that had gone into shielding them from other diseases were suddenly in danger of neglect. We may end up losing the gains that we as a country had made with malaria in the past 10 years. That's malaria researcher Dulcie Lautu. She's right in the thick of it in Papua New Guinea. And the COVID complications that Dulcie talks about are also being felt in other places that are prone to malaria, like Kenya. COVID just adds another layer of complexity to what people are already finding very difficult to deal with even under normal circumstances. Burnett's Dr Herbert Opie is a postdoc scientist and he's experienced firsthand the kind of havoc that a disease like malaria can wreak even before COVID came knocking. It kept me down for quite some time. I got the initial infection, got treated. Two weeks later, it came back and I was quite sick for a while. Hallucinations, headaches and shivers. And that was without even getting admitted to hospital. Across Africa, the human cost of malaria has been unimaginable. In places where there was historically a lot of admissions from young children dying from malaria, I think that is very troubling in a sense kind of makes you think what could be done better. You never really want to see young children those very early years dying from malaria, something that we know is treatable, preventable, but just the complexity of malaria and resource-poor settings just doesn't deliver those answers to these communities. As the limelight has been taken away from malaria and other infectious diseases, with resources shifting and pivoting towards COVID, where has this left our fight against malaria? As it turns out, vaccines really are the thing that's going to enable us to combat COVID and return to pre-COVID world. We haven't had that for malaria and it's incredibly hard to get funding for malaria. It saddens me that where we are now, we could have been five years ago. We could have been 10 years ago. Malaria elimination is a dream. It's not a must. It's not, we have to achieve malaria elimination. COVID is, we have to eliminate it. This is How Science Matters, a Bernard Institute podcast. I'm Tracy Parrish. Throughout this series, you'll meet some of Australia's visionary scientific thinkers. You'll find out what keeps them awake at night as they grapple with a pandemic and how science is playing a leading role in shaping our response. My co-host is Professor Brendan Crabb, head of the Burnett Institute, a microbiologist, malaria researcher, and one of the best minds in infectious diseases and global health. Today, Lost Voice, COVID's impact on eliminating malaria. I guess for us, working mainly on malaria and other diseases that affect resource-limited countries, we started to think about the wider impacts of COVID on some of the diseases that we work on, like malaria. 
And for me, having worked most of my career in populations that have limited resources and are impacted by infectious diseases like malaria, TB, issues of nutrition, I really started to think about what was the impact of COVID going to be in those communities. Hi, I'm James Beeson. I'm a Deputy Director at Burnett Institute, and I work on malaria and maternal and child health. And the impact in countries like Australia is bad enough. We've got one of the best resourced health systems and we're a rich country in countries with much less resources in remote and rural populations in resource limited areas in Africa or in parts of Asia, Papua New Guinea. The impacts could be huge and that's what really concerned me at the time. But as the COVID cases skyrocketed, with increasing numbers getting out of control, something else also caught James's attention. What was some surprise was it was slower impacting many African countries. And there's been a lot of discussion about why that was, and we still don't completely understand that. We have to give credit to some African countries that took steps early to try and alleviate the impacts. They could see that COVID was going to be a potential disaster. I think also somewhere like Papua New Guinea made an early call to stop international flights and stop international movements because they knew they would struggle to deal with the impact of COVID. And that did protect them for some time, which was helpful in buying time to get prepared for the impacts of COVID. I was going to ask you, James, about Africa and why it did well pretty early on. And of course, Africa's many countries, but at least some countries did very well, not all. Is that just that they're battle-hardened when it comes to pandemics? Do you think that that had something to do with it? whether it's West or Central Africa and Ebola outbreaks and so on, they seemed from this far away to click into gear a bit. That's part of it probably in some places. But there are a range of other factors. A lot of interactions and activities occur outdoors. Markets are often outdoors. A lot of social gatherings and things like weddings and other celebrations are often outdoors or not in a completely enclosed space. And so that's probably a factor. More of the population are younger especially adolescent age group and children who are less affected by COVID. So that's a factor. Some of the experiences of African countries and African communities with things like Ebola more recently, but also things like cholera pandemics, had prepared people to respond and that having to respond was not something they hadn't experienced before. And I was just speaking to one of my students who's from Africa. She commented that They'd been through similar sorts of lockdowns and restrictions before for other reasons, like cholera. We've been exploring a bit through this series the notion that those who have done well aren't necessarily the wealthiest countries. In fact, it doesn't seem to be a great correlation. In this part of the world, in some of the Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries have done very well. Some of those are reasonably wealthy, some of those are not. And I guess that's extended out to Africa as well. And of course, mainland Europe and the US have done very poorly. And the UK, of course, and they've got lots of resources. There's some big lessons in managing pandemics, I imagine, in all of that. There is another interesting angle And that is the way the immune system functions in different populations. We're all the same. We're all got the same immune system, but our exposure and our experiences during life influence and shape the immune system. So one theory which is not being pursued and something that we're trying to work on is that it's possible that a lot of exposure in some African populations and other communities in PNG, for example, a lot of exposure to different infections has shaped the immune system so that it responds in a different way. So it's plausible 
that this has influenced how the immune system responds to COVID and the impact of COVID in those communities. So that's something that we're trying to understand. We don't have the answer yet, but there are plausible explanations there. And does that happen at birth or is that in the first five years of life or where do you think that change happens? Bottom line is we probably don't know the answer to that yet. How much of it? Well, your exposure in early life. How much of it is ongoing exposure? And so we do know that if you get a serious infection, it will change your immune system. How long does that last? We don't really understand terribly well how long that lasts. If it happens multiple times over years, does that become imprinted so that you're really set then on a course of the way your immune system responds? And there's been a lot of distress by pregnant women around the world about the impact of COVID. But do we think that there might be a link down the track that they will create antibodies, for example, for the newborn? When you get an infection in pregnancy, or if you get a vaccine in pregnancy, that could generate antibodies that are then transferred to the baby. So a good example of that is tetanus. Hopefully we've all had tetanus vaccines. The idea is that it protects us against an infection that the bacteria creates a toxin which has terrible effects. When babies born, they have a cord and the cord gets cut, they could get an infection and they could get tetanus. So a vaccine was developed to combat that. That's a tetanus vaccine. So around the world we give that vaccine to pregnant women, they generate antibodies, those antibodies go into the baby, it protects the baby. So that concept is established. Given that young children are not hugely impacted by COVID, for reasons we don't fully understand, they don't get as sick, it's probably not something that we would use for COVID, but it is something that's being explored for other infections. This point about people with different immune systems having different outcomes, I assume you're talking there about disease severity rather than actually whether or not you get infected. And why is it that disease severity is related to our immune response? We know that there are mechanisms that exist that could explain moderation of the immune response through having had other infectious diseases that then has an impact on how the immune system combats COVID. But we don't necessarily know exactly what's happening there, but it could reduce the infection, could stop you getting infected potentially, or it could reduce the severity. When you're starting to need to go into hospital and potentially need oxygen, what's going on? As a non-clinician looking from the outside, there seems to be an inflammatory response that's more important than the virus numbers. We have to think about the immune system in the two sort of fundamental components. One is what we call the innate response. The immune system will just respond to any foreign pathogen or infection. The advantage is it's rapid. It will happen within a couple of days. The downside is that it's relatively nonspecific. So it will just fire away at whatever comes along. So as a result, you can imagine if it fires away too much, it's like a blowtorch and fire gets out of control, it can cause collateral damage. So there's an advantage of this innate response. It's our first line of defence. It happens quickly and it works against viruses. So that's a really important one. The second part is what we call the adaptive immunity. And that's what vaccines do. So what happens is you get an infection, your immune system generates this response that encodes a memory of that infection or you get a vaccine, the vaccine stimulates an immune response and it encodes a memory of that organism. Then, let's say, further down the track, you get exposed. This, what we call adaptive immunity, brings back the memory and says, we've seen this before, we know what to do here, and it blocks the infection. So the innate response is what 
our immune systems are firing when we get an infection, whether we get COVID or something else. So if the tuning of that response is wrong, it's too much of certain components, you can get really sick. It's scary to think that we could set off a blowtorch in our own bodies. So does this go some way towards explaining the different immune responses to different vaccines? Some people have not a hint of a symptom, while others have needed a day in bed. At the end of the day, we all have different responses to vaccines. And when we look at vaccines, we tend to look at the whole population. So we vaccinate 2,000 people. How well did it protect? And we go, protected by 80%. But we don't necessarily know why didn't that protect in those 20%. We can dig deeper and we can say in the 80% who were protected, they didn't get sick. Some actually didn't get infected at all. Their immune system fought off the infection, completely cleared it. And for some, they got infected, but they controlled it. And what's the difference between those two? It's that level of fine detail that we don't have a lot of knowledge on for most vaccines because we tend to look at the whole population or a larger group as digging down to those fine details and there may be answers there for next generation COVID vaccines but also for things like malaria vaccines. In a malaria vaccine we see level of protection of more like 50%, even 30% depending on the group. It's a more profound because you see some people respond very poorly. In other words, their immune system doesn't fire up after having the vaccine very well at all. And in others, particularly in children, you see the immune system fires up and then it disappears rapidly. So they don't sustain that immunity. And we just don't understand that level of detail right now. And that's a huge barrier to getting the sort of level of protection that we need to eliminate something like malaria. That knowledge is being developed around COVID to get next generation vaccines or refine current vaccines to get better control in populations and eliminate COVID. When COVID first came about, the world was still very much focused on malaria as one of its biggest infectious disease problems. Why is it still such a big problem? And why, when COVID came, did we worry about it more than if COVID wasn't here? I know we both stressed a lot about COVID, but also about blimey, what's going to happen to malaria, to HIV, to TB, especially in the developing world. Can you paint that picture a bit for us? For malaria, what we've seen was a concerted global effort and increased funding. And that increased funding kicked in in the early 2000s. And we saw over a period of about 10 years, some reduction in the global burden of malaria. But then tracking the numbers from about 2014, 2015, there's really been no decline. Then along comes COVID and we are already seeing in some places increasing malaria. So we are going to see increasing malaria in many countries, in many populations, and that's going to be harder to get back under control, especially in an environment where there may be less resources around that have been diverted to COVID. And that's a reality. It's going to be hard to claw back those gains and get back to where we were before the COVID pandemic. Winning back those gains now just seems so out of reach. We've already had bleak reports that state eliminating TB has now been pushed back 12 years. We don't know where malaria will land in the ashes of the COVID inferno. So what are the chances that the malaria response will actually ramp up?
countries and national departments of health have had to divert a lot of resources into combating the COVID emergency and to dealing with that. And that's having an impact on diseases like malaria and TB and the time frame for elimination or at least maintaining control, maintaining status quo is going to be impacted. Yeah, it's not the first time we've faced a malaria elimination campaign that has stalled. In the 50s and 60s, of course, it went really well. And for various reasons, it stalled badly. And one of the lessons there that shocked, I think, even the people who worked on malaria was the speed with which it came back. So there are all these other infectious diseases that you spoke about that we're worried about, but it's hard to imagine any of them coming back with the speed that malaria does. Are you worried about that? this time that we see a sudden surge in malaria or can we keep a lid on it? Historically, that is something that we really worry about, isn't it? Particularly in the 1900s, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, there were countless examples of countries that got malaria right down and then resources were diverted away and then we got an explosion. In some cases, the numbers went to higher than they were before the elimination campaign started. So that's a big issue. Look, on the positive, there are some countries that have recently declared themselves malaria-free, and there's some really valuable lessons to learn from those countries. Including China? Yep. China has done huge work wiping out malaria. Sri Lanka recently, going back a bit further, Algeria. And there's some really great lessons to learn from them about how they achieved that. I think history shows that Gains can be made against malaria in many places through intensified efforts, but our gains are relatively brittle. They reverse quite quickly. And malaria is a very different beast to COVID. It's not transmitted directly from person to person. We walk around Melbourne with masks on to prevent direct person-to-person transmission. We don't need to do that for malaria because it's transmitted by mosquitoes. And if there was a mosquito buzzing around in the room now and I had malaria and it bit me, it couldn't transmit it to you. It would have to develop for several days in the mosquito first before that mosquito becomes able to infect someone else. It's quite complex. It's surprisingly complex and it's surprisingly durable, this impact of malaria. It has persisted for tens of thousands of years and there are other species that have evolved with us since the dawn of humanity. So it's an incredibly enduring and resistant pathogen that's lived and co-evolved with humans. I think there's two elements to achieving the malaria elimination. One is the funding level and that global commitment and the commitment from governments to implement things that we know work, but there are still missing elements that we need research to provide the answers for. Ultimately, a really highly effective vaccine could be a silver bullet. If we had a vaccine for malaria like we have for another childhood infection like measles, very highly effective, 90% protection, lasts for several years, that would be a silver bullet for malaria. But we don't have anything near that level yet, but that's got to be a goal for the future. We have good testing and treatment protocols for malaria, and they're the things that have made the big gains. Why isn't that enough? I just want to explore why the current tools maybe can't do the job. The current tools can get us progress, but the limitations are we've got increasing drug resistance, So the drugs that we use become less effective over time and we're seeing that spread, particularly in Southeast Asia and increasing elsewhere. We've had reports in PNG of drug resistance to the main drug that we use, artemisinin. That's one factor. Then bed nets rely on the use of insecticides 
treating those bed nets and we're seeing in some places frightening rates of insecticide resistance so those nets become less effective. So this is the mosquitoes actually becoming resistant? Yes, the mosquitoes becoming resistant to those insecticides. And similarly for spraying of insecticides in houses and dwellings to try to kill mosquitoes, they're becoming resistant or they change behaviour. So another example is you sleep under a bed net at night, walk around with a bed net on you. So mosquitoes shift to daytime biting. It's just natural selection. If you're using an intervention that combats mosquitoes that bite at night, you'll select for those that don't bite at night. And we've seen that in many places around the world. We've got tools that have partial effectiveness. We have to acknowledge they really are valuable, but, but they're not, not enough. the solution. Mm. Yeah, they're not enough. What all this means is that a vaccine for malaria is vital. But how are we able to develop a COVID vaccine with blazing speed, yet one for malaria has been decades in the making? Just how complex is it to find an effective vaccine for malaria? There are two elements to the malaria vaccine. It's a tough challenge, much tougher than COVID. So when COVID hit... There was a global response from governments around the world, from pharmaceutical companies, from the big farmers, from biotech companies, and from the research community, academic community. There had to be a solution for this. And the solution had to be vaccines. And as it turns out, vaccines really are the thing that's going to enable us to combat COVID and return to pre-COVID world. We haven't had that for malaria. And it's incredibly hard to get funding for malaria. And it saddens me that where we are now, we could have been five years ago. We could have been 10 years ago. There's such a delay in having a breakthrough, or having some major advance to getting funding to progress that. It's a several year process that it slowed our progress towards getting a vaccine so much to getting more effective vaccines. And how much of that is because it's not in our backyard? We talk about 400,000 people die every year of malaria. We've got something like a couple of million people are suffering from malaria at any given time. Is that the thing? COVID was in our backyard, both in the UK and in the States and Australia and obviously globally as well. It's over there. It's in developing countries. Is that part of the uphill battle you face? We see that play through commitments of global leaders and those leaders with funding. We also see it play through even things like the journals that publish results and that give attention and raise awareness about diseases. There's less focus and there's less attention given to diseases affecting less resourced communities, underrepresented communities. And we've seen that play out a little bit with the Black Lives Matter movement, publishers recognising that they could do better. That was pre-COVID and I'm not sure how well that's going to be sustained, time will tell. So that's one factor, certainly, that doesn't affect the resource-rich countries that have the resources to invest in funding. It's also the other is that it requires pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies to invest in new drugs or vaccines for malaria, and they're not financially as attractive as many other things that they could invest in, whether that's COVID or whether that's new treatments for cancer or autoimmune disease or other things drugs for mental health. So 
that's a big factor as well. I mean, another example is even in the diagnostics field, we need tests for malaria, where they have to be super cheap. We're talking about a dollar each. And that's a really tough margin to work with for diagnostic manufacturers. So if along comes a disease like COVID, it's offering a much better financial return, better financial security for those companies. You can imagine that's going to draw them away from making large numbers of tests for malaria that have a very small profit margin. So there are these sort of economic drivers as well. The one other thing I would say is that because malaria has always been with us, there's almost an acceptance. And I'd say malaria elimination is a dream. It's not a must. It's not, we have to achieve malaria elimination. COVID is, we have to eliminate it. We have to control it. But that's not necessarily the same thinking for malaria. It's still a dream. Really great point. And I guess I'd just add, having thought about this myself a fair bit, part of the answers to the question you raised, Tracy, about is it neglect of a population is actually being played out in COVID as well. Just because we do have a vaccine doesn't mean it's in the arms of the poorest 100 countries in the world who at the moment still stand at less than 1% vaccinated and are many years away from dealing with COVID in the same way that the more developed countries are. So it's there as well. We've seen it with HIV. We've had solutions for HIV for a long time that have largely dealt with it in a country like ours, yet it's a major problem in the developing world. So it doesn't necessarily play out that even when there's a solution, a technical solution, that's in any way equitably distributed. So the story of malaria as a problem can be told through even the successes of COVID and HIV that we've faced in the past. But James, you mentioned your frustration around funding and us needing to find a solution, but also that malaria is a technical challenge at a different scale to COVID. I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Why is it so much harder? It's easy to look at COVID and the speed at which the globe has developed several vaccines against COVID and think, okay, this is obviously something that we can do for all pathogens. But malaria and other organisms like HIV, other diseases like HIV, TB, are much tougher. And for malaria, if we contrast them, malaria versus COVID, COVID, the vaccine targets one protein or one part. A protein is a component that makes up the virus, so it targets one part of one protein of the virus. That's it. That's what the vaccine developers had to work on. And as it turned out, the solution to getting a vaccine based on that one protein was relatively straightforward using concepts that have been around for centuries, really. For malaria, we don't have that simple starting point. There are actually about 5,000 proteins that make up the malaria parasite organism. We've probably got more like 50 to 100 possible what we call candidates or proteins that we could target with a vaccine. And so this has created a bit of a barrier. So firstly, there's a question of complexity. Which one do we target or do we need to target multiple? So if you start to think of, let's say, 50 different proteins and we might need a combination, you can see already there's going to be hundreds, thousands of potential combinations we have to test. I think to some extent there's a bit of a kid in a lolly shop effect you go into the lolly shop or candy store and there's all these choices, all these things you'd like to try and that diverts you away from focusing on a smaller number of things. And I wonder in retrospect whether we might have got further with malaria vaccines had there been a much more concerted focus on a smaller number of vaccine targets. I know you're a global leader in understanding why 
and how it is that some children, after they've been exposed to malaria a lot, become immune. They don't get sick anymore from malaria. They still actually get the parasite, but they don't get sick. And you're interested in using that knowledge to help make a vaccine. How does that line up? Overall, our objective is getting a vaccine that is highly protective and long-lasting, can last several years. So there are three elements that we're particularly focusing on. So we need to understand, well, what is it about the immune system? What are the functions or actions of the immune system that are needed to get that optimal immunity, optimal protection? We know that we can focus on one element and get some protection, but what we're looking for is, you know, 80% protection, 90% protection, as seen with some of these COVID vaccines or a vaccine like measles. So that's one element. What is it about the immune system? Our line is and our data, our findings suggest that we need multiple components. It makes sense. You want to maximise what the immune system has to offer. Not everyone responds, not everyone generates the right sort of response to the vaccine. We particularly see in African kids that a lot of kids don't develop a good response to a vaccine. We have to understand why that is. So that's another element of our work. So that if we've got the best vaccine, everyone responds well. It works well in everyone. So we're not leaving some people behind. So that's an important element. The third element is understanding what specific component of malaria the immune system should target to get the best response. James dedicated his scientific life to conquering the malaria puzzle. It was after seeing the devastating impact of the disease on pregnant women in Malawi and Kenya. His early days in medical training became a turning point as he went from a medical career into research. Really, my first experience was when I was a medical student and I went to Malawi and worked in a hospital there for a short time. That was at the height of the HIV pandemic. Malaria was very high, higher than it is now. And TB, massive problem. And really just seeing firsthand the extent of the problem and the impacts on the community really convinced me then that's what I wanted to focus my career on. The other lesson I learned was there was only so much I could do as a highly specialised, highly trained single clinician working in a context like that. What I felt was I could achieve more, have a bigger impact if I focused on public health and research and training. I guess the other thing as a clinician, when you're at the bedside talking to a patient is you think, how could I have prevented you from ending up here? Of course, you're thinking, how am I going to treat this person? But you're also thinking, what was it that led to them becoming sick? And how could we stop that in the first place? So that's always been a strong part of my thinking. And that led me to move into research. Is there someone that stays in your mind? Is there a young child or a mother or a case that still stays with you? I think that's various memories of working in an antenatal clinic and seeing dozens of pregnant women each day and get the test back, malaria repeatedly, people getting treated for malaria and still being infected but not clearing. Those sort of memories stay with you. Every day, there are literally tens of thousands of parents waking up with a sick child who has malaria or who you don't know if they have malaria and you're having to work out where will I get my child tested? How will I get treatment? Will the treatment work? Are they going to get really sick? That's happening to hundreds of thousands of people. 
millions every year. With so many more people getting malaria each year and it's not the common cold, how does it impact on communities to have malaria through their children and through their adult populations? Yeah, with over 200 million cases per year, it's a huge impact. There are so many ways it does impact. Kids getting sick and they don't go to school. Many areas where malaria is most prevalent are the areas where families have the lowest financial resources and other resources. A single episode of malaria illness that requires them to go to a healthcare centre, it's time away from work, it's time away from farming, for example. It's the cost of transport to get there, it's the cost of going to the clinic, paying for drugs, which many people have to, or going to purchase drugs. These are huge impacts on the microeconomics of the family, and it can be a breaking point. If there are several episodes in a year, it really can be a breaking point. Malaria, for many people, has been a driver of poverty. An endless loop where they get chronically ill, can't go to work, can't go to school. How on earth does anyone ever get out of that? 1,200 of those kids will die each day. Yeah. It's still a major human tragedy. And I know you're very interested in solutions there, but I know what really drives you is societies being more equitable. And I find that link between infectious diseases as a barrier to communities and countries' progress absolutely fascinating. Is that still a major motivator for you? That inequity is a big driver still. And as the COVID pandemic was evolving and vaccine development was in progress, you know, there were a lot of tweets and messages on social media about how vaccine was going to be for everyone and this was going to be the people's vaccine. And we looked at that and thought that would be fantastic. And yet what we saw was stockpiling of vaccines by wealthy countries. And what we're seeing now is rollout of vaccines in wealthy countries first and in resource-limited countries second or third. And on a positive, what are the big learnings to come out of COVID and the response that malaria researchers can take forward? Yeah, I think it's been a reminder of the power of vaccines and a huge reminder about how a highly effective vaccine could be a game changer for malaria. Another is the importance of strong healthcare systems. It's really, I think, a change of thinking from saying malaria elimination is a dream to it's an absolute. We have to achieve it. In the same way as we're thinking we have to achieve COVID elimination. Someone said for COVID, they think regularly, are we doing enough and are we doing the right things? And we need to be asking ourselves those questions for malaria regularly. Are we doing enough? And, you know, of course, we can sit here passionate about malaria, but we need those partnerships from global leaders and funding organisations. And I think there's a fantastic opportunity and a real need to better engage communities. We need communities to be driving that, to demand essentially their rights to malaria treatment, diagnosis, prevention, and to a solution. And finally, James, what keeps you up at night? I guess the thing that worries me is the future of the world's children. I don't mean to sound corny with that, but you think about the impacts of things like malaria and many childhood infections are still huge problems around the world, even where we have vaccines. Nutrition, providing kids with a healthy start to life, Life's got enough challenges as it is without all these other huge insults. 
I think that's something that worries me. The other is a more local one. I do worry about the future for our next generation of leaders with funding being so incredibly difficult for them to achieve. There's a danger that we're going to lose some of those really passionate leaders. We've got to find ways to support them and grow their career and ensure that they can live that goal of being the next generation of leaders to carry the goals forward. Just how far have we tipped the balance with malaria? Only time will tell. The way we've embraced science in our response to COVID may help find solutions to other infectious diseases. How Science Matters was produced by Written and Recorded. This is a Bernard Institute podcast. For over 30 years, we've been at the forefront of infectious disease research, public health and national health security. COVID-19 is a complex global health challenge. So join us in the fight against the pandemic and help us to remind everyone how science matters. This is our last episode in the series. You'll find this and all the other episodes on the Bernard Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for How Science Matters. And please share this episode and all the others with two friends or more. If they're new to podcasts, show them how to follow our show. We want this podcast to spread like a virus, but in a good way. I'm Tracy Parrish. Stay well and stay safe. This podcast series was recorded during June and July 2021. In this evolving pandemic, please search for the latest official coronavirus advice in your area.